Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, today, as I said, we will be taking a look at Psalm 63, and it's a psalm that in many ways brings us to see the heart of David as he is stranded in the wilderness. But this is not the only time in his life where he's had his life on the line, is it? And that's what we're going to see today. However, this time, it's actually due to his own son named Absalom, who has not only stolen the hearts of the people of Israel away from them, he is seeking to kill his own father. If you're not familiar with the details of this story, you can read the full account starting in 2 Samuel 15, and I would actually recommend you go back and do that at some point today. But the gist of that story is essentially that over the period of four years, again, Absalom stole the hearts of the people. Each day, he would sit at the city gates and he would wait, and as people came in to bring in their disputes that they might be settled before the king, who they found was Absalom. He was the man who was giving them wisdom. He was the man who was, little by little, gaining a following as he increased in the stature before the eyes of men. They would see him as their leader instead of King David. And yet Absalom's desire, again, was not merely that he would just become this popular guy. He wanted the throne. What that meant is he wanted his dad to die. So one fateful day, Absalom actually sets his full conspiracy into motion And all of a sudden, things become very real for David and his band of loyal men. Those who remained faithful to him, being King David and David, had to flee the city in order to just simply survive. But because the hearts of Israel were with the people, or rather with Absalom, David had no safe place to hide. And so much like he and his men haunted the wilderness during the time Saul sought his life, the same exact thing is playing out today. Once more, he is in this dry and weary land of the desert. Once more, he has seen himself in circumstances which will inevitably lead to his death unless God does something. And it's out of these circumstances that you can see David takes in all the surroundings that he's looking at, all the different things he's experiencing, and he's writing this psalm. Right? So he looks out and sees the vast desert, and he knows that things are perilous. He has no food. He has little access to fresh water. He knows that his own son, his confidants, his advisors, even his own countrymen really do not care what comes of the king unless, of course, he dies. But in David's mind, the worst of it was not that he found himself in the wilderness. It was not that he lacked food and water. In David's mind, the worst of it was that he was removed from the presence of Yahweh. Now, the Ark of the Covenant remained in Israel, so he could not go to the sanctuary for worship. That means he could not offer sacrifices. He could not pay his vows. He could not hear the congregation sing. He could not hear the word of God preached. In short, everything that was life-giving for David was utterly cut off from him, and it was cut off by his own son. The very son that he raised, the very same people that he poured his entire life into, not just his son, but his countrymen. Everyone around him, save that few, or those few men who remained loyal, were the ones that were participating in this. It was not merely this dry and weary land, this time of exile, that plagued him. 
It was this deep season of spiritual drought where he was removed from the temple and unable to worship. Despite his thirst, despite his yearning for even food at this time, what he longed for was something greater. He longed for his soul to be sustained by God. He knew there was no relief that would be found, in the immediate sense at least. This was to be his lot. This was to be what he woke up to every single day. And although he knew the promises of God, David had no clue whether or not he would live or die in this moment. It's not all that hard to hear this then, and hear the broad contours of the story and at least resonate with King David a little bit, is it? Some of you here today are going through a season where it seems like everyone else around you is happy, and yet you're not because life is not going all that great for you. Though it's going well for them and you are seeking to lift them up and to praise God for their triumphs, your life is not so great, and it's hard. Each day you don't know what new heartaches await, whether it's a physical ailment that plagues you or this sense of spiritual drought, if you will. Chances are that all the while through the midst of it, you've been wondering even, what do I even do with this? At times, there's just simply nothing you can do to fix the problem. And when that's the case, what do you do? Earnestly, what is it that you do? We know where to find ourselves satisfied in God. And yet the question remains, how in the world do you do that when everything you face around you seems to just be affliction or persecution or suffering or even the result of your own sin? Well, for David, the answer he gives here comes by way of meditation. And by meditation, I don't mean that idea where you're involved in a transcendental practice with your legs cross-legged on the floor as if you're going to find enlightenment. That's just pagan nonsense. By meditation, what I mean, biblically speaking, is this reality where you actually think deeply upon the truth of Scripture, but for a prolonged period of time. It's more than merely ruminating it or all the way through your mind or thinking upon the truth just deeply. The goal is to internalize truth in such a way that it affects how you think and how you act. In other words, you internalize the truth of Scripture in such a way that it changes you. It has an object and an objective. Now that object is God and his word. The objective is not inner peace. It's that you would praise that you would praise God. We must, in other words, simply come to a point where we see that in God's word and in the person and work of God himself, more particularly, there is peace to be had, but he is worthy of worship. He is worthy of meditating upon and seeing all that he has done. So therefore, we are to study Scripture diligently by all means, but then we must dutifully worship the God of Scripture for all that Scripture reveals about him. So when we look at our psalm today, that's precisely what David shows for us. He doesn't make a single request, but he gives instead five principles whereby you might find satisfaction in God, even though you may be in the midst of the wilderness, so to speak. Now, the first principle we will see is that we are to determine to seek God before all else or above all things. The second, to behold God in all his splendor. The third, consider the grace of God in all things. The fourth principle, dwell upon the goodness of the Lord. The fifth principle, and the final one, recall the protection of God. So look with me now as we see our first principle starting in verse 1. 
David writes, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And notice how he opens up this psalm by simply crying out to God. But again, the unique thing is he's not actually asking for anything. And if you were to scan the rest of this psalm, you'll see that in no way does he make any request to God. Instead, what he does is he meditates or dwells upon who God is. And then in light of that reality, he then gives a series of things that he is obligated to do, all of them culminating in worship. Right? Instead, he makes these affirmations about God and then, again, focuses on who, or his own obligations in light of who God is. He begins with this clear affirmation, notice in verse 1, that God is his God. Now, you and I might be tempted to simply gloss over that little reality, that detail of the possessive pronouns, but the idea is that David's immediate first thought in the midst of his trials is that God truly is his. God is his God. The simple truth that he's describing here is that God's people, in the midst of any hardship, can rely on the fact that God is actually their God. He's not this capricious God like the Greeks or the Romans believed in. He's not this cold, aloof, impersonal God like Islam teaches. He is intimately involved in every detail of his creation, and yet he also works by personally disclosing himself to his people. The God of scriptures is not just this God, though, who personally reveals himself. He is the God who actually meets with his people. He tabernacles with them, in essence, as Christ himself did. He is the God who is with his people at all times and even through all things. And so even though David has friends and family alike that are forsaking him and trying to murder him, trying to remove him from the throne forcibly, the one thing he knows is that God would never, ever do any one of those things to him. God will not forsake him, in other words. God will not abandon him. God is with him. Right? He is not merely the creator of all things. He is the one who works through covenant, and he has sworn covenant with David. And therefore, this God cannot void promises. But he also fulfills them in a deeply personal way. That's the wonderful thing about it. Remember back in Genesis 17, God promised to Abraham that he will make him into a great nation. He will give the Israelites a land. And then he says, and I will be their God. Again, in Genesis 26, God gives a promise to Isaac to reiterate it. And though he was this foreigner in a foreign land, which turns out to be the promised land, God tells him, stay in this land, remain a foreigner. And then he says, I will be with you and I will bless you. Again, to Jacob in Genesis 31, I will be with you. To Moses in Exodus 3, when he's afraid of going before the Pharaoh and speaking, I will be with you. And though countless times the prophets speak of God's righteous judgment and wrath, these people are going to be exiled under the hands of people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, fierce, ridiculously fierce people, they were still told, do not fear the nations you will go into. Why? Even in spite of their sin and rebellion, I will be with you. As we come to texts even like Matthew 28, Right? Jesus, he's giving the great commission to the disciples. He's looking at them and saying, go and make disciples. Right? The make disciples is the main command. Do so by going, baptizing, and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And then he says this, and lo, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When you meditate on the reality that God is your God, he's my God, he's our God, 
when he is the one who is truly with us, when he sent his son to be God in the flesh and dwell with us, that he is God with us, Emmanuel, you can genuinely see why David doesn't start to make a single request here, can't you? For David, the, the only desire, the central desire of his heart is to find rest and satisfaction in this God rather than anything else. He doesn't ask God to alleviate his struggle, to end his pain, or even to fix everything. He looks at it and says, I know that my biggest need, even now, is God. He recognizes, even in the midst of the affliction, that he needs this holy resolve, in other words, to simply meditate on who this God is, what this God has done, and what he has promised to do. And his immediate response, then, is that I must worship this God. In light of all that God is and does, I need to worship him. Notice in verse 1, in spite of his circumstances, this is what he does. His first inclination, he says, is to earnestly seek after God. His son is trying to kill him. That's his first reaction. Earnestly I will seek you. The Hebrew conveys this idea basically as if it's like the breaking in of the dawn or the first light of the day. The reality is that it doesn't necessarily speak to time or convey the essence of time. Some of your Bibles might say it as eagerly or earnestly instead of a time-based word. But there's this intensity, there's this default reaction or reflex in which he looks at it and says, in every aspect, the one to whom I need to go first above all else, above anything else, is God. He is my sheer only delight. In other words, he has this fixed purpose and focus to seek God genuinely with all his heart. Notice how he describes his spiritual condition, though. Look back down at verse 1, and you can see this. I want you to. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Right? He's looking at his surroundings. He knows he's hungry and thirsty right now. But in everything, he's in this barren wasteland in the wilderness where there's no water, very little access to food. And yet he looks at it, and he's like, I don't need to escape that. That's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is that my soul is in anguish because I'm not with my Lord. David's all-consuming passion is to be filled up and sustained by God, not by food. He will have it no other way right now. His true burden <coughs> excuse me, is simply to have more of this God. Now, I see this, and I can't help but think that you and I often just simply long after all the wrong things. I think of all the ways that we pursue comfort and safety and ease. We desire to be free from the burden of trials, even though we know that the Lord uses all of these different things to sanctify us, to bring our hearts to a deeper joy in God, a deeper affection of Christ. We find our affections are far too small, though, even when things go wrong. What happens but that we freak out? Largely, I would argue, because we've not simply set our sights on Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. As the book of Hebrews puts it, instead of us actually looking to Jesus, who is this author and perfecter of our faith, what we do is we fix our eyes on the very things we know that we ought not fix him on. Right? Think about it. What we do is we look at every weight that holds us back, we look at the sins that so easily entangle, and we say, I'm going to look after that. I'm going to long after these things. We long for something more outside of Jesus Christ, and then we find ourselves never satisfied, and we wonder why. And we are always pining after more. We have eyes full of wonder, like a kid looking at a giant ice cream cone. We think of things and say, how, how large can I build my barns? 
How many barns do I need to build in order to hold all of my goods? The object of my joy is not bound in my creator, but in the creation. That's how you and I often think. But what do you do when all of these different things get taken away? What do you do when you go into the wilderness, so to speak, and you have nothing? What is the object of your hope? And therefore, then, what is the objective of your hope? Is your hope God and your objective to praise him? Or is your object of hope something in this world that though you may praise it, it's idolatry? For most of us, we don't find ourselves hungering and thirsting after God. What we find is that our flesh doesn't yearn for him, but for other things. Right? We worry about food and clothing and shelter and all these different things, but what does our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, even say? He says, do not worry about these things, even the Gentiles do. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and here's the kicker, and then all these things will be added to you. Do you see? Do you see what David's doing? This is what he's doing here. He's looking at it and he's like, I don't need food. I don't need water. I don't need safety. I don't even need my young boy to stop trying to kill me. I need my Lord. I need Yahweh. I need my strength, my comfort, my consolation. He's captivated with God. He's so captivated with God that he sees him as his greatest delight. He sees knowing him as his highest aim. He sees glorifying him as his ultimate purpose. And he knows that he can look upon Yahweh and say, my soul is satisfied, though all else has gone awry. Ultimately, beloved, when God is your joy, when he's your hope, when you determine to seek him above all else and all other things, you can actually have satisfaction in the midst of the worst times in your life. So many just don't want to do that, though, because we're looking for shortcuts. Beloved, if you are literally always at a point where you're never seeing God as your satisfaction, you're never finding peace in the midst of hardship, go back to the word. Dwell richly upon it. Look at Christ, your Savior, and see that there is your hope. That's, in essence, what he talks about in verse 2. There's this reality that unless you come face-to-face with who this God is, and if you don't know him, you just simply won't have that reality of peace. But if you know him, you have peace. Not only do you have objective peace because of what Christ has done, right? There's peace between you and the Father. Nothing can take that away. But you also can actually have substantive peace, that subjective peace, because you know that you are safe in his hands. You know that he will right all wrongs. Look at what he says in verse 2. This is our second principle. You must behold God in all his splendor. In verse 2, he says, Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Now what he's doing here is he's simply remembering that time he went back into the sanctuary or into the, uh, not the temple at that point yet, but he was in the presence of the Lord on the tabernacle. So what he's seeing is the very spirit of God hover above the ark and there's this sense of holiness and dread even, but also utter joy as it just hangs thick in the air. He's in the very presence of his God. But he's not there now. Right? In our psalm today, he's in the wilderness. He no longer has that. He doesn't have access to it. But he recalls his time, and he wants to go back. He wants to return to it. He's also, though, thinking of God's people. Right? Wherever 
the temple, or rather the Ark of the Covenant would have been in the sanctuary. At the same time, you have people coming in from all different walks of life in Israel, coming to worship their God. You can just imagine this flurry of activity. Men are coming in, they're trying to make their offerings, they're paying their vows, they're coming as a congregation, and this is a mighty throng of people who are all lifting up their voices as one to sing praises to the king. And he thinks of this and he says, oh, they would sing. It was not just this beautiful, rich noise that I heard, but all of it was true. Every last word that we sung was all God's word. And imagine that throng of people. We heard Lena actually give the, the, one of the lyrics of Israel's songbook today in Psalms. He says, come, O Israel, let us shout joyfully to him with Psalms. Why? For the Lord is a great God. He is the great king above all gods. His hands contain the depths of the earth, and even the peaks of the mountains belong to this God. The sea is his. Why? He made it. His hands formed the desert land, and every aspect, in other words, all of creation is his. It belongs to the mighty king. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker, for he is our God, and we are the sheep of his hand. Imagine singing that. Well, you guys don't actually have to imagine that all that much because you sing every single Sunday in this church. And you heard those very words given to you today. You participated in saying them. So every bit of David's life is dreadful and sad. And what he recalls is what you and I might just simply say is that mundane act of going to church. Think of everything that the gathering of the saints actually is for a moment. This is the simple way God in his glory, shows the full culmination of who he is. He reveals his power and glory to his people. As you all come in and you sit in this room, every last one of you is a demonstration of God's faithful love if you are in Christ Jesus. Do you know why? You come from a background that is different than your background, and you come from a background that's different than your background. All of you have a myriad of different backgrounds and hobbies and interests and pleasures, and yet far and few in between of you would ever interact with each other on a normal day. You are one in Jesus Christ, though, because he has taken you and plucked you out of the darkness and brought you into miraculous light. You are a testament to what God has done. He also shows how his grace has simply surpassed the greatness of our sin, you and I deserve the penalty of death. We deserve condemnation in hell. And yet God, in his mercy, freely gave his son. Freely. And he reconciled us. Right? That's that objective peace between us and the Father. We are now reconciled. It's objective. Nothing can take it away. Each and every person here who is in Christ is a demonstration of his mightiness to save. That no one can snatch us from his hand. God also reveals the extent of his power. You and I might look on all the different things that are evil in this world going on on a daily basis and wonder, can something just make it go away? Can somebody stop the madness? The good news is there is one. We are simply waiting for the day, that glorious day when he approaches and he vanquishes every single foe. He reigns victorious over all, that every knee, every tongue Right? Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. That's the glorious day we wait because this Savior King will come and as a mighty one, he will break the nations. But he will also make all things new. 
And as we look at all these different things in our world today, all the rampant evil, and we wonder, when will he come? We can look to the past and see his mighty saving hand all over the place. God has done this before. Surely he will do what is right yet again. We have a hope and a confidence. He is mighty to save. One of the most important reasons why we all gather each and every Sunday is for the exclusive purpose of being able to remind each other of what that means. That we can come together and sit under the preaching of the word and sing songs and hear the scriptures read and pray with one another and encourage one another for how long, so long as it is called today, right? That is why we take up the word and remind each other of who this glorious God is that we serve. We sing all of these different songs to remind each other that God is, again, mighty to save and faithful to the very end. We might find ourselves in the barren wasteland, in other words, and though our souls might crave those days of peace that are long gone, the reality is that we can always point each other back to the fact that there is a better day coming and that our true spiritual sustenance does not rely upon things like food and water and shelter and everything else, freedom from sickness and death and despair, but in the mighty God, the mighty God who loves us and saves us and sustains us and is with us. We do so for much the same reason why David does so here. David's legitimately at rock bottom at this point in his life, yet he steps back from it all, He recalls when he goes into the temple, or again, sanctuary rather, and he just simply recalls a vitally important truth, much that we already talked about. God is with him. God is with him. He has always been with him. When he has God, he has everything he needs. David has this deeply personal relationship with God. But the reality is just as true on the flip side of that. God has this uniquely personal relationship with David. That is the single greatest reality in all time and space if you actually stop to think about it. Some of you, you wonder, how do I know if I have this relationship with God? Do I know God? Am I known by God? How do I know that? Well, all I would simply ask you and virtually every last one of you in this room would be able to faithfully answer it, is do you know the gospel? Do you know it? Do you know and believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God? Do you believe that he is the one who took your sins upon himself on the cross? That in that glorious exchange, he showed his power and his glory as he rose from the dead on the third day, securing your life and hope in him. That you have eternal life simply because of what he has done not because of what you can do. If this is what you know, if this is what your trust and hope is in, then it really doesn't matter how you feel. And I don't mean that in a cold way. What matters is if you know this one the Scriptures call the Christ, the Messiah, the one who came to save his people, the world even, from their sins. You may feel rotten today. You might feel angry. You might feel bitter and resentful and rejected, dejected, everything else in between. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is what you know. Do you know the power and glory of the risen King Jesus? The one who conquered sin, death, and Satan, are you known by him? If you know him and you are known by him, you shall see 
that God will never leave you nor forsake you? Will that not satisfy you, though he slay you? In the end, the only difference, the only meaningful difference is between the one who finds himself satisfied in God during the midst of trouble and the one who doesn't is not that their trials have gone away. It's not that things have just miraculously gotten better. You don't follow Jesus to have a better life. You follow Jesus because he is worthy. He is king. The one who finds himself satisfied during times of trouble is the one who beholds the Son of God in all his glory and casts themselves upon him for mercy. They place their faith in him. Well, perhaps today you find yourself at a crossroads. You're just simply wondering, why is my soul weary? Why is my flesh weak? What I would simply do is just point you back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look there and see your hope. Look even to the people right next to you today and see how this hope is not just for you, but for them. Again, you are literally amongst God's people. He has called you to lift one another up, to bear each other's burdens. And even though you may not find yourself in the midst of the wilderness today, chances are somebody here is, because we all go through trials. Don't counsel them, just grin and bear it. If you do, you've missed the whole point, beloved. God has called you to this body we call Missive Day of Fellowship. He has called you to these people. If you are the strong, remind the weak and weary brother where your strength and theirs comes from. It's solely in God. Remind them why we gather. Remind them why we hope for better days. Remind them to find their satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone. Why? Because he gives us grace. He gives us exceeding grace. Now look with me at verses 3 through 4. I want you to see our third principle. Again, right off the cuffs of that, consider the grace of God in all things. Our psalmist writes, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. I want you to see how David's prolonged meditation, not only on his circumstances, but on God more importantly, led him to recognize this truth. Right? He did not come here magically. The only reason why he can say this is because he's taken the time to actually dwell upon who this God is. Now, the term in verse 3 that you see as loving kindness, or that I read as loving kindness, or one maybe in your Bibles that says steadfast love, depending on the translation you have, that's that Hebrew term, hesed. And all that means is, actually, I say all that means, it actually has an incredibly rich amount of meaning just packed into one word. It talks about his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his ability to never falter or fail on his promises or not change his mind, and more. And it's all just wrapped up in that one neat little term. And it's much like you and I would understand the word grace today. It's that free gift of God, that undeserved kindness or favor of God but specifically in terms of covenant. And what I mean by that is that bound in the very promises and work of God. So as David reflects on the fact that he's about to die, or he very well may die by the hand of his own son, he says something that's incredibly radical, doesn't he? He looks at that, and in the midst of it, he says, your grace, O God, is better than life. How many of you think that way? What this implies, though, it's not just that the grace of God is better than life, it's better than everything else, too, isn't it? 
Now think of everything that's precious to you, whether it's your health, your children, your spouse, the sweet fragrance of a flower on a nice spring day, or even a cool ice cream cone on a hot summer day. Every bit of it, he says, worse than grace. Oh God, your grace is better. Think of all that's lovely and worthy of praise on earth. The grace of God is better. Think of whatever's noble and good and pure and right, even in God's own sight, in his creation. Think of all the wonderful gifts he's given you. The grace of God's better. It's truly better. It's better than that relationship with your daughter or your son who rejects you and despises you. It is better than the well-paying job. It is better than the nice cars, the big home, the money in the bank. Finding a wife or husband if you're single. Having children if you're barren. Having a life of relative ease and comfort in the midst of a world that is crooked and perverse. The grace of God is truly better than life and everything else. And the question is not if that's true. The question is if you and I actually believe it. Think of all the ways that God's shown his favor, especially if you're in Christ. He has taken your every sin. He's nailed it to the cross with Christ. Every single sin. No longer are you condemned. There is no condemnation. Again, objective peace through Jesus Christ. He's even granted you the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has taken the act of obedience of Jesus. All that Christ did that you and I could never hope to possibly do. And he has covered you with it. So that as the Father looks upon you, what he sees is not wicked, vile, wretched, sinful you. But the very righteousness of Christ that he has covered you with. You are holy and blameless in his sight, as Jude would put it. And then consider all the ways that God in his providence has simply given you good gifts. He's been kind to you. right? You may not be the wealthiest person on this world, but has he given you daily bread? Even if he doesn't, though, the grace of God is better than life. That's a sober thought, isn't it? Think on that. Consider the implications of it. Even if you slowly and painfully die from starvation, disease, thirst, whatever, the faithful covenant love of God is better. Why? At the very end of all days, you'll be raised again and you'll be at the great wedding feast of the Lamb where you will never thirst or go hungry again. You'll never deal with that old sin nature hanging over you each and every day, that slave driver, that you know you do the things you should not do and yet you do them anyways because you constantly battle. Think of the fact that even though you do that, he still looks at you as a son or daughter and welcomes you into the family name. The grace of God is better for a reason, beloved. That's why David says it. He knows his own heart. He knows exactly what he's done. I mean, this is well after the fact of Bathsheba. Think of what he did. Adultery, murder. And yet he looks at all of his life 
his own sons rebelling against him, wanting him dead. He's lost the throne. He's got no food or water. He's got very little comfort. He's with a band of stinky men and probably hiding out in a cave. And he says, the grace of God is better. Even if he had all the stuff he had before, it's always better. Think of what will happen in the new heavens and the new earth. Amos portrays this reality. He talks about farmers who are planting seed and then people who are harvesting. And the ones that are harvesting and the ones that are planting seed are always bumping into each other because they simply can't keep up with all the weight of what's being produced. There's far too much. There's an abundance of things. They are on each other's heels the whole time, and you can just imagine the chaos of it. But he also describes this idea of like the hills or the mountains running red or scarlet because of the amount of wine that's just through teeming rivers, passing all throughout them. There's honey dripping everywhere. Everything about creation he's describing is free from the curse. And yet, every bit of it's better than the garden. And when you consider all these different things, all the wonderful things that you have yet to wait, (laughs) have you done anything to earn it? Why else would the grace of God not be better than life when you can look at all this that God has done and his marvelous kindness towards you and you can see it and you know your own heart just like I do? Is that not grace upon grace upon grace? But even now, beloved, even now, in the midst of everything that's going on and everything that you and I do, all the different things that are simply plaguing us, the grace of God is still better. It's not just about what's to come, it's about what's even given to us now. When you truly understand that the grace of God is the best free gift you have been given and it will only ever get better, you will only ever get freer and bigger, you cannot help but give him praise. Right? I mean, I'm watching some of your faces just light up as you're starting to think on these things. When you're going through the hard times, counsel yourself with this. Remember all that God has done and will do. Bring your mind under submission to the word of God and meditate upon all that he has said and done and will do. Notice his disposition is intentional. It's very, very intentional. He looks at it and he says, because God's grace is better than life, I will praise him as long as I live. Right? Whether I live or die, what will I do? Praise him. He's, he's reason to say it, right? I mean, you guys are thinking about some of this stuff right now, but he also has a reason to move his heart to a conscious act of worship. In spite of everything else going around him, right? He's in the midst of a fierce trial. His son wants to kill him. People have forsaken him. The entire nation he served forever has now abandoned him. You got a few good men. That's about it. And he looks at all that and he says, I, I know the grace of God is better than life. I will praise him as long as I live. I might die tomorrow. I might die the next day. I might die six years from now. I have no clue. This might be my lot for the rest of my life, and yet I will praise him. That is David's heart. (laughs) Once more, I'm just reminded that what really matters at the end of the day is not how you and I feel, but what's true, isn't it? Don't miss my point when I say that. You're going to experience emotions, right? They are God-given emotions in one sense because... God has emotions. His are perfect and without the stain and corruption of sin, but he has given you these things. The reality is that your emotions aren't evil, but 
the question is not if your emotions are good or evil, but rather the fact that you are a sinner under the stain and curse of sin. And therefore, the point is how you choose to respond to your faulty emotions when they come. Do you continuously bring them under submission to the word of God? Do you bring them to a point where you can look and say, even though my emotions are going right and left today because of all these different things happening to me, I am going to consciously choose to rejoice in the midst of my trial. Why? Not because the trial is pleasant, but I know it will produce a harvest of righteousness in the end. Do you give thanks to the Lord for bringing you through the crucible of affliction? Not because the crucible is fun to go through. Not for the pain of the fire that's burning off the dross. But for the pure metal of faith that remains when all is said and done. Again, you don't get to that point, though, unless you can look at it and say the grace of God is truly better. It's better than me feeling good right now. It's better than me not going through trials and hardships. It's better than me not feeling the weight of my sin. But you don't arrive there either unless you're satisfied in God. Verse 5. Look at this now. Verse 5, David, full on. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. We know David's not gotten everything he needs. He could use a good steak. He could use some water, but in spite of how desperate things are and continue to be, he looks at it and says, God, you have satisfied my soul. You have given me the choicest, fattest, richest of meats, if you will. You know, right? Look back at verse 1 really quick. I want you to see this. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Now go back, verse 5. My soul is satisfied, as with marrow and fatness. It's hard to to read this and not think of the words of Isaiah 55, right? You, You see the nation of Israel, they are under the judgment of God for their sins, for their idolatry, for everything else that they've been doing. And he, in spite of all of that, God looks at them and says a very simple request. Right? I mean, and these guys are literally experiencing this right now. They are experiencing hunger and thirst. There's all sorts of evil going on just because people are trying to eat. So instead of them eating their babies, he looks at them and says, look, everyone who thirsts, that's all of you, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You've got nothing in your pockets. Come, come and eat, enjoy Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me, he says. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. The Israelites were in their predicament because they had forgotten the very grace of God. They'd forgotten that it was better than life. They stood to lose literally everything they sought after in their own sin. And yet, Yahweh still looks at them and he says, return and feast. 
enjoy, be satisfied according to my mercy? The answer, beloved, is always the same. Whether you're the unbeliever here today and you're simply going down a road that you know it's not one to go down and you've been called a number of times to repent and believe the gospel, as a guy who is literally the drug dealer and the user and everything else in between, I can tell you it will never satisfy. Christ has satisfied. Christ has satisfied. If you're the Christian here today and you have been the one who is rejecting your Lord's commands, you are going your own way because you are stubborn and stiff-necked in your rebellion. Come back to your Lord and be satisfied in his commandments and him. Repent once more and come back to the foot of the cross where you have free forgiveness and eternal life. The answer is always the same. Satisfy the longing of your souls with your God. Let your soul rejoice in him and then praise him. His grace is better than life. Notice the result of what David does here. I want you to look back down in verse 5. Right, he's been dwelling richly upon the grace of God, and he says, my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Joyful lips. Literally expressed, he's saying, I will praise you with the lips of a ringing cry. It literally cannot be contained how joyful I am. I will shout. So all he's done is think upon who God is and, and his word and what God will do, and what that does is lead to this praise that just bubbles up out from underneath him. Notice how he moves all throughout the psalm to doing that. He's reflecting on God to praise all throughout it. Verse 3, you can see it. My lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will lift up my hands in your name. Verse 5, my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Verse 7, in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Verse 11, the king will rejoice in God. And so the natural outcome of our time in God's word ultimately is always worship. Theology, without proper doxology or worship, if you will, is the essence of a dead religion. But on the opposite side of things, a praising or doxology without a proper theology is the hallmark of an empty emotionalism. Both of them are going to be vapid. They will not sustain you. At the end of the day, it's not enough even that the student of the word just simply reads the word. They must feast upon it. Now think of even our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, right? He is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And what does he do when he is asked, make these stones into bread? He responds, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Father. No. Man shall not live on bread alone. You must live from the words that come from the mouth of the Father. The word incarnate, had this response in the midst of his temptations. Will you find a better way? To read the word of God without basking in the truth of it is like looking at a plate of food for nourishment, but you just don't eat it. You're wanting the benefits and the blessings of all of it, but you don't care at the end of the day. You're refusing to take in what you know you need. To expect all the blessings and benefits of being transformed by the renewal of your mind, as Romans 12 puts it, but never taking the time to savor the meal that God has given you in his word, is the same exact thing. It's no different. It will never come. I always think of Ronnie Coleman, right? Ronnie Coleman, just big, massive weightlifter. And he's like, everybody wants some massive muscles, but nobody wants to lift them heavy weights. 
Brilliant, though. I mean, you look at it, it's the same exact concept here. You actually have to get busy at something. And God will be exceedingly gracious to you as you pick up the word. I think of people that I met with where for them it was, I don't know if I even believe all this stuff. And then they read the word and they're like, I believe it. I'm like, praise God, brother. But those are the things I look at. And it's like, will we not go back to the word and drink deeply of a brook that never runs dry? Will we not feast upon the fatness of the Lord and find ourselves satisfied in him? Think even of Colossians, right? Paul says to the Colossians, let the word dwell richly among you. In what way? With all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another. So not just individually, but corporately. This is an act we do as a church. How? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Right? Dwelling richly on the word of God. That's the object. It's to lead you back to your maker that you might see him and behold him. The objective then is what? Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with all thankfulness. Worship. Do you see how tightly they're connected? As you contemplate the grace of God, all that you can do is be left to praise him. As you really see the extent of what God has done, you cannot help, even though you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but look upon him and say, he is good. He is worthy of all praise. Fourthly, we are to dwell upon the goodness of God, verses 6 through 8. David writes, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Now again, go back to verse 1 and see this. Right? For some of you, again, it says, early shall I seek you, right? Earnestly shall I seek you. Talked about that's the breaking in of the dawn or the beginning of the day, if you will, even though it doesn't necessarily always reference time. It can. The idea here, though, you can look back if you see 6 and 7. At the close of the day, what's David still doing? He's still dwelling richly upon the word of God, right? All day long he's doing it. So whether he lays down at the end of the day or he's standing on guard to make sure Absalom and the men don't come in and try to kill them, He's thinking of God, right? Most of us would be like, well, I hope Absalom's not coming around that bush over there. You think about it, your mind would be on all sorts of different things. Or you're like, that fruit over there looks pretty tasty, but if I go 50 yards too far that way, I might get shot with an arrow. No, David is literally taking watch and making sure that his men and he don't get killed, and he's still meditating upon God and his word. All that this shows us is that Finding your satisfaction in God, meditating on his word, beloved, it's not this passive act. Again, it won't just magically happen or magically come. It's this conscious decision that must take place all throughout the day. So I ask people, and I do this all the time when I sit down for counsel, but when you're starting to feel just dry and rotten in all those different ways, when you're feeling your soul just languish and give out, when you're feeling depressed or anxious or fearful, you're feeling the weight of your own sin or even the weight of a trial, do you dwell on God and his word? Are you making a conscious decision all throughout the day to think about all that he has said within this book that he has given us? These sentences and books, I mean, rather paragraphs and words and everything else that have the utmost meaning in all of life. As you wake, do you bring your mind to think upon that which God has given you for all of life and death? As you go back to bed that day, do you sit down and dwell once more upon his promises and mighty deeds? 
Do you look to what he will do one day and take your hope and put it in that, that he will return and make all things right, make all things new? Think of all the mornings where you just lay 2, 3 a.m. You've tossed and turned for the past hour. You can't get back to bed. And what do you do with it? Pray. Good. Yeah. That's simply one way of meditating upon God and his word. But think of all those times where you are doing other things. You're sitting in the car. You're at the bank waiting for somebody to move along so you can get in and get your money, whatever you got to do. You're dropping somebody off at work. You've got to wait for 15 minutes because they haven't yet come out of the building. We are the generation that's most distracted in the world, and what do we do all day long but scroll? And we wonder, why do I not have peace? Why does my soul languish? Think again. Philippians 4, right? Paul gives a command. He says, think upon God and his word. Think of all that's lovely, all that's true, all that's right. Put such things into practice that you've heard from me. And then here's the rub. Here's why we wonder why we don't have the peace of God. He says, once you've dwelled on those things, once you've put it into practice, that's when the peace comes. It's a successive chain of commands given in that passage. He says, you don't think on it, no peace. You don't put into practice what you've seen and heard from us, no peace. But you do those things, you have the very peace of God. Right? It's, is this not also what David's expressing here in some way, shape, or form? He's remembering God on his bed, and he's remembering him in the morning. So all throughout the day, he's making it his life's purpose to glorify this God by praising him. And you know, worship for David is not merely that he's singing, it's his entire life as well. The reason why David does this all day long, though, is actually rather simple. He looks at God and he says, under the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. In your protection, Lord. In your protection, under your care. <clears throat> Notice how tight that connection is, right? You can see it in verses 6 and 7. He's talking about meditating on God in verse 6 and then verse 7. He has been his help. He's been the one under whose shadow he can hide the shadow of his wings. So because God has helped him all the way in his time of need, David's looking at it and says, I, tr I trust this one. He is my maker. He is my sustainer. I will praise him. He looks at it and says, I can't help myself. Right? You all have heard that just horrible line. God helps those who help themselves, right? Utter hogwash. You're, yeah, you know, brother. It's like, no, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. It moves beyond that, though. It's well beyond that. David finds tender, loving care like no other under the shadow of his wings. The image is like a mother hen who takes her chicks in under her wings. There's warmth, there's safety, there's the embrace, there's love. It's not just help. It's everything about who God is all due to the Father's faithful covenant love. And we see this no more clearly than in verse 8. It says, My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. In all his desperation, David hasn't abandoned God. Everything continues to go wrong. He still will not abandon God. I think of Job, right? Satan says, Let me afflict him, and all he has, surely he will curse your name. But Job doesn't do that. 
It's no different for David here. David has seen every blessing melt away before his eyes. But instead he says, my soul clings to you. Nothing in all the world can make him abandon God, but more importantly, there's this preserving reality of the Father where the Father's right hand upholds him. It's not about David's strength or ability. It's not about his own might. The whole reason why David clings to God to begin with is because God upholds him. David doesn't have enough strength to cling to God on his own, but God is utterly safe and dependable. David clings to God with all his might, right? So you see on one hand, that's perseverance, right? He clings to God. He is making every effort that he can to ensure that he is near to the Father. And yet on the other hand, you see the providence of God, the mercy and the grace of God. God upholds him by the care of his right hand. Nothing can snatch him. Nothing can remove him. Nothing can knock him down. Even if David fails to cling as tightly as he should, he is still safe and upheld by the mighty hand of the Father. The one who upholds all of heaven and earth, the one who holds the foundations of the cosmos, shall he drop him? No. But consider this. I mean, just consider this in light of that. You and I, we are called to persevere, right? We know this. But more than this, does God not keep us safe in his hands? John 10. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's impossible. If you are the one who has come through Jesus Christ, you are safe in the hand of the Father. You are safe to the uttermost. You are safer than you could possibly ever even imagine. You cannot fall from his grasp. Nothing can take you away from him. No tyrannical government, no number of trials, no tribulations, no wicked people, no murderous sons. No amount of your own folly and sin. Not even Satan, that great old dragon. No one can snatch you from his hand. When you dwell upon that fact, the verifiable, unchangeable reality that God shall not fail to uphold you, is that not something that brings you satisfaction, even though everything else goes awry? Why then would you not stick to God like glue? Think of how merciful he is. Point five, when in the wilderness, remember the protection of God, verses 9 through 11. There's a very clear contrast in these three final verses. I want you to understand that. They're very simple to understand. There's a decisive outcome for both the wicked and the righteous. It could not be any more different. In every single way, all throughout the psalm, you see David finds his satisfaction in God, and he is preserved and cared for and loved and everything else in between. But that's not the case for the wicked. That one little word in verse 9 makes all the difference. Take a look at it. But... Right? God will uphold the righteous by his hand, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. Here it goes again. But, but the king, that's him, will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him, Yahweh, will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped or shut up. 
essentially. The mouths of the righteous will praise God, but the lips of the wicked shall be shut. That's inevitably the final outcome. Their lives will not see the light of light. Whatever power they seem to have would just simply melt away as God casts them down. He will use different means to do it. He might have them go by the death of the sword. They will certainly have their dead bodies eaten by foxes. Pretty brutal stuff in one way as you look at it. But in every which way that David can look at it, he's like, I won't come to harm. He's still weary. He's still hungry and thirsty. His son is still trying to kill him. He's in the middle of a dry and barren land. He has to keep guard at night, so you know he's not sleeping all that way, all, all that well. But he knows the sovereign one will act in justice and the powers of darkness cannot prevail. At the end of all of it, he looks at it and he can say much along the lines of the Apostle Paul, he might be afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, and struck down, but not destroyed. He's safe and he knows it. Everybody will give praise to Yahweh for his mighty deeds, though he be in the wilderness, though he must wait. And so that's where I look at all of you today. As we close this up, I want you to simply ask yourself a question. Do I believe the grace of God is truly better than life? Do I believe it's better than everything else? Do I cling to God or do I cling to the promises of this world when that when Christ returns, we'll just simply burn into oblivion as he recreates all of heaven and earth. I want you to understand, every last one of you meditates on something. You always are dwelling on something. The question is, what? Is it God and his word, the pure object of your faith? And therefore, do you then have the objective to praise him as is due? Understand, to be in the wilderness is a time of incredible testing. The contents of your heart will come out. You will see things that you do not like. It will be different for every last one of you in some way. It's not a fun time. It's not a light time. It's a sober time. So when it happens, not if, but when, do not dismay and wonder if God truly loves you. Do not grow bitter and lose heart. Do not lessen in faithfulness. Do not look at God and distance yourself, but cling to him. Do not look like to give thanks in all things. Praise him for his grace is better than life. When you come down to it, that's the story of David in a nutshell here. But it's also the story of a greater David. You see Christ found himself tested in the wilderness, and even though he overcame it, he was tempted far more than just those 40 days of testing. And he was afflicted far greater than that too. He is called a man of sorrows and for good reason, But even though he was acquainted with grief and shame and he was despised by men and rejected by men, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. He endured it because he knew that without his life, death, and resurrection, redemption was impossible to be accomplished. He knew it, and yet he gave us hope. And all the while through it, He sustained and nurtured his own soul with constant communion with the Father. He sustained himself by the very word of God for the objective set before him. Again, I ask, shall you and I find a better way? Let's pray. 
Well, Father, we do thank you that you are incredibly merciful to us. We do not deserve your grace. In fact, many days we do nothing but spurn it, and yet you have been satisfied in Christ. And so I pray that we would, in turn, be satisfied in you. That we would look with much hope and much joy to all that you have done, all that you continue to do, and all that you will do, recognizing that we are just but a blip in this grand story of redemption, that it is about Jesus Christ. It has always been about Jesus Christ. And for all eternity, it will be about Jesus Christ as we sing to the praise of his glory. So I pray that as your church goes home today, that you would give us mercy, that you would keep us safe, but not that we might be holed off in our homes, but that we might be bold for the sake of the gospel. That we would continue to provide a nation that is spiraling down the drain with a substance of hope that can actually bring them the longing of their souls. Use us, Father, mightily. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.